0: Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Lutie.
1: The Ten Simple Proofs, A Study in the Trustworthiness of the Bible. So we're going to go through an overview of why the Bible is trustworthy. One of the most uh, attacked points in our modern day, and I could say throughout all of history, has been the credibility, the authenticity, the integrity, the believability, the trustworthiness of the Bible. To many of us in here, it's not really a question. I don't know that many of us are struggling with this. However, we live in a world in which this is a constant paramount point, And within the Church of Jesus Christ today... It is probably the most paramount point. If I were to give a quick enunciation of why I'm very concerned about the postmodern movement in Christianity and what we used to be called the emergent movement, but they've cloaked themselves like chameleons and changed their terms many times. It's basically liberalism attempting to come into the conservative realm of the church. The reason it concerns me is because it undermines the integrity of the word of God. And when you undermine the integrity of the word of God in text, you undermine the integrity of the word of God in person. And if you undermine Jesus Christ, you lose all salvation, you lose all sense of life, hope, and truth. And so as a result, this is literally a point where we as the church of Jesus Christ should stand and not move even unto death. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. I will gladly die over the integrity of the word of God because the word of God is like the treasure map, which leads to the treasure, Jesus Christ. If you lose the treasure map, good luck trying to find the X that marks the spot, the cross that marks true life. You will not find it. This is our guide. It has been entrusted to us. Generation after generation, it has been preserved. Men and women have bled, shed blood, uh, suffered, died to preserve the integrity of this for us. And I say in our generation, it may be under attack more than in any previous generation. We have all sorts of undermining of the the word of God in the church today, which is hard to even imagine that the church, the ones entrusted with this truth, are actually the ones undermining it. But I wouldn't call it the true church. I would call it something that is masquerading to bring confidence to something that shouldn't have any confidence placed in it. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to establish a bedrock of reasoning. I'd like to establish why we believe in the word of God. There, and we call this the 10 simple proofs. Even a child can understand these things. Now, I could say at least one of them is a little more challenging than maybe a child would naturally understand, but I still would like to call them simple. Session one, the position and preeminence of the word, understanding its supernatural prominence. So in this first session, we're going to go through two key truth points. The first one is truth number one. God's word is, in fact, and in truth, God's word. I know that sounds like quite a simple and obvious statement, but it's not obvious to everyone. The emergent writers today have made the declaration that the word of God isn't actually God's word. It is the words of men. For instance, Eric, who wrote the book of Luke? Let's say Luke. Well, you just said it with your own mouth. Don't start saying that Luke's words are God's words. Whoa, 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 whoa! No, it's Luke that wrote it. Yes, but God carried along Luke to write his words. And even though those words enunciate Luke's, even his writing style, God chooses human vehicles through which to reveal His Word, which is the great miracle of the Word of God made flesh, which is a human body. Jesus Christ was a man, one hundred percent so. And yet, his life was also 100% God. The mystery of the word of God in text and the mystery of the word of God in person are the same. 100% man, yes. But 100% God, yes. So God's word is in fact, and in truth, God's word. The 66 canonized books of scripture, we know as the Bible, are of divine origin and bear the very nature of God Almighty. They are pure, holy, unchanging, without lie, and holy, authoritative. What the word of God says, goes... When it speaks, the true believer doesn't argue, negotiate, or critique. Rather, he bends his knee, submits, and says, Yes, Lord. There is no other book outside the Bible that bears such position, honor, and authority. The second truth, Jesus is God. I know that's sort of like, what does that have to do with the Bible? Well, it has a lot to do with the Bible, because when you believe the word of God in text is, in fact, the word of God, what it says is that Jesus is, in fact, God. And, get this, that he is that very text of scripture made into human form. He is the Annunciation of it. When he walked this earth, it was like the word of God, the Bible walking on two feet. So Jesus is God and is in fact and in truth God's word made flesh. As God's word is truth, so is God's word made flesh, Jesus Christ. As the scriptures that testify of him, he too is of divine origin. He is God Almighty, revealing the pure, holy, unchanging, guileless, and holy authoritative nature of Jehovah God. There is no other man outside of Jesus that bears such position, honor, and authority. Your position on the word of God defines your response to the word of God. How you relate to this book is very, very important for how you relate to Jesus Christ. And how you relate to this book is going to define if your Christianity even works or not. And so let me give you three different positions that we oftentimes approach the word of God with. The modern, postmodern era has actually begun to diminish the word of God and treat it as some archaic piece of literature. And they have a compassionate gaze towards it. They pat it and say, oh, you poor misunderstood relic. Oh, you've been so twisted and abused and so many of your phrases have been mistranslated and oh, so much has been left out that should have been included and so much was put in that shouldn't have ever been there. As if it was just cobbled together by a whole bunch of cavemen You see the entire perspective if you come at the word of god as if you're above it as if you are the Intelligent one and it the idiotic one and you critique it It does affect your life and it affects christianity And so if you come at from above it you stick, you know Your spectacles in the end of your nose and you look down on the word of god and you pat it. Oh the poor thing uh, it will destroy your christianity it will destroy the church of jesus christ in our generation and this is the generation in which we have been born a good majority i would say of the church it's called new christianity will treat the word of god as if it is a relic and as if it is beneath human intellect and that we know more than it and so we choose out of it that which is appropriate for us in our time and our generation that which is politically correct and we discard everything that isn't politically correct This is another common orientation towards the word of God. We'll say that we're equal to it. I would usually liken this to the buddy or the chum, where you have a friend. And if you have a friend, you like your friend. And if someone said, who's your best friend, you could say the Bible. And yet, if you treat the Bible as if it's a friend or a chum, a friend can't tell you to clean your room. Could you imagine how awkward that would be if your friend comes over to your house and you're shooting baskets with him and says, you go in and clean your room right now. Excuse me? You're my buddy. You don't tell me what to do. And that is the same way many of us appropriate the Bible. We love the Bible. We speak highly of the Bible. And yet the Bible cannot command us what to do. It's a friend. It's a chum. It's a buddy. So we esteem it as good. We treat it as a friend, bask in its kind phrases, but ignore its call to give up all. And finally, here's the position that will change your life. This is the position that has made Christianity Christianity, which has made it turn the world on its head throughout the ages. We take a position below it. We actually are a servant unto its words. What it says goes. We actually bend our knee even before it speaks. Even before we start reading it, we say, this is the word of God. And whatever it says goes. It Mark is marked by the supreme intelligence of the one who created the heavens and the earth. I am not smarter than it. I am an idiot next to its wisdom. I submit to it. And the only way to become wise is to submit to it. So we take a position below. We believe it with unquestioning fervor, reckon it with unwavering faith, and bend to it with loyal, worshipful devotion. In comes the crafty voice. You see, this Bible, when you study it, and I don't know how many of you have spent a good portion of your life studying the Word of God. That's my story. I have spent a good portion of my life, and I would say it's at the point where well over half my life has been has been from a position of absolute surrender unto its words and and trust in what it says, and all I can say is it works. I am absolutely, radically, wholeheartedly, completely altered by this book. I have the highest esteem for it, and if there was a competition for esteem of the Word of God, I'm I want to be in the running. If there was an Olympic event for esteem of the Word of God, reverence for it, and trembling before it, I want to be in the running. I love this book but there is a voice and each one of us has heard this voice. It's that snake. Remember the serpent in the garden of Eden? What is that snake saying? What is his message? His message is very clear. He wants us to question the word of God. When God speaks, it's clear what he said to Adam and Eve about the trees in the garden. Do not eat from this tree. The day in which you eat of this tree, you will surely die. It wasn't it wasn't a garbled message. It was a very clear message. God spoke. They heard it. However, the serpent comes in, slithering with a singular agenda, and that is to undermine the credibility, the authenticity, the integrity of the word of God. So calling into question the obvious truth. Did God really say that? So that question is not just being asked 6,000 years ago in the garden. That is the question of our day. Did God really say that? Eric, are you so certain that God said that? I'm not saying that it's not good, it's not moral, it's not ethical, It hasn't been. The, it's not the best-selling book in all the world. But did God say that? Do you have an answer for that? Eve stumbled over this. What do you say back? Now, the servant was more subtle, which means cunning, shrewd, and crafty, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, Hath God said, he has to have a British accent for it too. I'm not very good at that. Hath God said, has God indeed said, did God really say, did God actually say, indeed has God said, did God say, is it true that God has said? So here's my expanded Genesis three, one version. This is like throughout the ages. Now the serpent was more subtle, cunning, shrewd and crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, "Yea, hath God said. Has God indeed said, did God really say, did God actually say, indeed has God said, did God say, is it true that God has said? Yes, it's true that God has said it. You see, when you know the answer to that question, your life works. When you stumble at that question, you die. This is the question that will enunciate which direction you go in your life. Death, life. How you handle that tree, how you handle that voice, how you handle that serpent. Is the Bible true? Did God say it? If you don't know the answer to that, you have weak knees in a time when you must be strong. The basis of belief. The word of God is the word of God, and it cannot lie. At Ellerslie, we go through a discipleship process, and one of the most basic aspects is our relationship with the Bible. And you would say, How, do you start there or do you start with Jesus and the gospel? We start with the Bible because when you start with the Bible, that gives credibility to the person of Jesus and to the message that he brought. You see, it's good news when you understand that the Bible is true. If it was just wishful thinking, if it's just someone's philosophy, if it's on par with Buddha or Muhammad, there's nothing about it that's divine. It's just human intellect, human philosophy. We don't need any more of that. What we need is something divine which means something sent from heaven to this earth. So the basis of our belief is that we believe that the word of God is the word of God. And get this, that it cannot lie. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually works also in you that believe. Hebrews 6 says, we're in God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, which means the unchanging nature of his counsel. It does not change. Confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable, unchanging things, which are the great promises declared and an oath given by God to seal the deal in which it was impossible for God to lie. So when we say that the word of God is true, what we're saying is it's God's word and God cannot lie. So when we say the word of God is true, it means it has no exaggeration in it. It has no flaw in it because it's God's word and God cannot lie. He is not exaggerating. He's not misrepresenting himself. When he speaks, he cannot lie. And this is our confidence. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. This is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entered into that within the veil. God is not a man that he should lie. I love that line. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? So if you believe this is the word of God, which means he said it, well, then shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? This is our relationship with the word of God in text. The strength of Israel will not lie. Let God be true, but every man a liar. If the book, if the Bible is just a compilation of man's wisdom, men can lie, men can exaggerate, men can come up with all sorts of concocted conspiracies. But if this is, in fact, God's word, God cannot lie. Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou might be justified in thy sayings and might overcome when thou art judged. The 66 books of the Bible... Now, today, we're going to refer to them as the Word of God. There's a lot of names for it. You could call them the canon of Scripture. You could call them the Scripture. You could call it the Bible. There's various terms for how we could describe it. All would be correct. In other words, there isn't just one way of describing it. I will give you where those terms come from. However, one of the battles today is that the emergent argument is that God himself doesn't call the Word of God the Word of God. Or how about this? God himself doesn't call the Bible the Word of God. And I would say that is absolutely preposterous. The entire Bible is the word of God. It is that which God has brought. It's the revelation that came from above down to this earth. And the Bible makes that very clear. That isn't actually a point of debate amongst us as Christians. It is a point of confusion that the enemy is attempting to bring in to the church today to cause doubt and to have us backtrack to say, well, maybe it isn't the word of God. No, 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 no. It is, in fact, and in truth, the Word of God. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. That's an interesting statement. So, now we know, if you've ever heard the statement, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, well, there's this trinity. God is three persons in one person. How that all works is not what we're talking about today. However... These three are the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, you're going to see in the New Testament, is swapped out for something known as the Word, which in the Greek is a word called logos. A lot of us in the English would say logos. And so what we have is this idea that there is one that has revealed, one that has spoken the Father's message. He has come and revealed who God is. And he's known as the Word, and we know him as Jesus. And so in this message, you're going to see me do something, which is not me doing some gymnastic routine. It's me just clarifying what the word of God in text says. That is that there's a revelation that comes from the father and it was captured in text. We carried around in 66 books. It's known as the Bible. But there was also a revelation sent forth from the father, the only begotten son of that father, because he so loved us. He gave him. And that one is also called the word, the logos. He's the expression He's the carrying device of an idea. If I have a word, I speak it, right? Well, where does that word come from? It comes from inside of me. It, it, it captures an idea, a thought. So say I'm thinking something inside my head, and I'm like, hmm. And so I think it, but and I say, what was I thinking? Sort of like me asking you what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. It's like, how in the world am I? I, don't, I wasn't in his head. I don't know. What's amazing is you can read my mind. How? By me using a word. I take that thought and I package it inside of a word. And what do I do? I stick it on my tongue and launch it. And then your ear goes and and sucks it in. And then you unwrap that word and you actually know what's in my mind. You're like, I understand what you're saying. God has something. He has a revelation. He has a message. How did he get it to us? By means of a word. That's how he did it. He gave us the revelation of 66 books and he also gave us the aha And now we know the father. We know the father because of the word spoken. So here's our Greek word. If you speak Greek, read on the left side. If you speak only English, you might want to read on the right side. Logos. Is it text or is it a person? That's one of the key questions that we could ask. Because in the New Testament, this word is used to describe a word. It's it's actually, it's used like 200, 300 times. I mean, it's used a lot of times in the New Testament. And so as a result, it could be used to just describe, you know, what I said to you and I gave you my word and I spoke something to you and it could be described as a logos. And yet it's also describing Jesus. It's actually the word to describe that which was sent from the father. So is it text or is it person? Is the word of God text or is it just the word of God in flesh? It's both. And that's the key. We must understand that the two are synonymous. The Word of God in text reveals perfectly is in agreement with the Word of God in person. And the Word of God in person is in perfect agreement with the Word of God in text. They are both the Word of God. A brief history of the Logos. Wielding the Septuagint. Now, one of the interesting tools that we can use as Christians today is understanding how to appropriate the Greek. The New Testament is written in Koine Greek. Most of us don't speak fluent, fluent Koine Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew mostly, and then there's a little Aramaic in it. Most of us don't speak Hebrew and Aramaic. About two to 300 years before Christ, the Jewish rabbis translated the Bible, the Old Testament, into Koine Greek. And it's called the Septuagint, which means the seventy. So there's like 70 Hebrew scholars that cra- mastercrafted this book called the Septuagint. It's actually written in Koine Greek, which is the same language as the New Testament. So when the New Testament writes in Koine Greek, one of the ways that you can understand how it ties in with the Old Testament is you can see how the Old Testament rabbis translated the same words. You know what the word logos or logos is very common in the Old Testament translation of the Septuagint? And what do you think it refers to? The word of God. The revelation that comes from heaven down. You know what the New Testament writers, what, two to three hundred times, refer back to the Septuagint in their quotes? They don't quote the Hebrew Bible, they quote the Septuagint, which is showing us the credibility of this translation. God himself is endorsing the idea of translation from Hebrew into Greek. I know, that's an amazing thought. God is actually behind this, quoting the Septuagint in his divine word in the New Testament. And this key word known as logos is there. So here we are in Psalm 33, and this is in the Septuagint. For the word, the logos of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. By the logos of the Lord were the heavens made. So who made the heavens? Or how were the heavens made? By the word of God. Do you know what the New Testament makes clear? The same exact thing. You see, what we're seeing in the Old Testament is a picture of this idea of the word. The word is not just phrases and terms and and some vocabulary that's floating out there. It has an identity. It's like a person. The word of God is always coming to people, being revealed to people, expressly showing himself to people. How does language do that? Unless it has personality. You see, there are three in heaven that bear witness, the father, the word, and the Holy Spirit. You see, the word is a person and he's always been around. You know how the heavens and the earth were created by the word of God. Who's the word of God? Well, in the New Testament, we know him as Jesus Christ. Here's our word, logos, a word expressed, something spoken, a thing revealed through speech, the vehicle of revelation. So here in John one, this is New Testament in the beginning was the word, the logos and the word or the logos was with God and the word, the logos was God. All things were made by him. What did Psalm 33 say? The Logos made the heavens and the earth. And what does it say in John 1? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You want to know who the Logos was? It was Jesus. Jesus is the same one from the beginning. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word, the Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. The revelation of God throughout the ages. So in Psalm 119, the longest chapter of the Bible... There's a great line that many of us are familiar with. It says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In the Septuagint, that word is Logos. So thy Logos is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Logos is a light. So this is what the Old Testament would say. So now let's look at John 1. What does John say? Remember, he's talking about the Logos in this context. He's talking about that word. It says, in him, the Logos was life and the life was the light of men. The Logos is a light unto our path. And then what does John say? I agree, he says, in, in the New Testament. In him, the Logos was life, Jesus. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The word, this is in the Old Testament, so we're going to walk through, and I'm going to just show you a sampling, because it's all over the place. If I did, we'd have 38 pages just of this. The word, the word, Or the Logos that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He saw the word. Then came the word, or the Logos of the Lord to Isaiah. Jeremiah, to whom the Logos of the Lord came in the days of Josiah. The word of the Logos of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel. The word of the Logos of the Lord that came unto Hosea. Now the Logos of the Lord came unto Jonah. Now the Logos of the Lord came to Micah. Who's coming to them? Who is this? Well, we know in the New Testament exactly who it is. His name is Jesus. You see, the word of God is expressed, and then it was written down by these prophets, by these great men, because the Logos was all the way back in the days of Moses too. Moses, in fact, the introduction to it is Moses, is declaring the Logos. He just didn't have time to include it in this. In the second year of Darius the king came the Logos of the Lord by Haggai, the prophet. In the second year of Darius came the Logos of the Lord unto Zechariah. Now, what we have is in the Old Testament, we have a revelation of an expression of God, a revelation of God to his people. And he is revealing who he is. It is captured, it is enunciated. We know it as 39 books of the Old Testament. It is captured and it is known as the Logos. Big L. It is not just anyone's word. It is God's word enunciated, captured. But when it is captured, when it is heard, it is written down. And when it is written down, what's it called? It's called scripture. You know what scripture means? That which is written down. Well, what's written down? Just anything? I mean, I said something is written down. No, that which God expressed to be written down. The word of God speaks. It creates. It reveals. And then scripture Is what becomes text. That's what we know as text. So now it's given. It's spoken. It's revealed. And then it takes on a body. It's called Jesus Christ. Scripture and Jesus Christ. Two different ways that the scriptures. And that the word of God are made flesh. The word of God has been brought to us in textual revelation. And in personal revelation. The logos, we know it in the New Testament as Jesus Christ, the word of God, the vehicle of revelation, the perfect expression of the father, the embodiment of the divine word of scripture in human form, Jesus Christ. John 14, if you had known me, says Jesus, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. How how, how could we know the father? How could we have seen him? Because something has revealed him. Who is that something? Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believe thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. You see, He is the Word. He is the expression. The Father has something inside of Him that He wants to reveal. So who does He send? He sends forth the Word, the carrying device of His revelation, Jesus Christ. This is how He has always revealed Himself. How does He reveal Himself? Through the Word of God. That is His technique. That is His way. You can criticize it all you want. God came up with it. It is how He changes the world. It is how He reveals His nature. It is how He shows His gospel. This is how He's done it. So the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the father that dwells in me, he does the works. Our terminology, the word of the logos or the logos of God revealed in text is known as the scriptures. So when we are talking about the scriptures, we are talking about the word of God, that which God spoke, that which he revealed, captured and enunciated in text. It's called the scriptures. We can call it the word of God. It's fine because that's what it is. There's nothing wrong with that terminology. However, what it's typically going to be referred to, especially in the New Testament, when it's talking about the text, it's going to be called the scriptures. But what the scriptures are is the word of God made text. And then the word of God or the logos of God revealed in a person, we understand in the New Testament, is Jesus Christ. Rightly handling the word. How we handle the word of God in text is how we are handling the word of God in person, Jesus Christ. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling the logos of truth. You've been given this word in text and in person. How you handle that text and that person is everything as a Christian. If you don't know how to handle it and you mess it all up, well, you're also messing up your entire life. If we diminish the word of God in text, we will diminish the word of God in person. If we challenge the word of God in text, we will challenge the word of God in person. If we remove the divinity, which means the godness, from the word of God in text, we'll remove the divinity from the word of God in person. When you make the word of God in text just a book of men's writings, what happens is you make Jesus just a man. I know that sounds like, well, why do you have to do that? Well, it's just how it works. You see, the entire superstructure, infrastructure of the word of God in text is supernatural. When you remove that supernatural dimension, you also remove the supernatural dimension of the one that it points to. For instance, what you'll see, the liberals are always famous for doing this. Like, oh, come on. You don't have to say that it's God's word. It could just be men's word. It's a good ethical, moral book. Very high literature. It's its very amazing, truly. Well, We don't have to believe in a virgin birth. Do you know that that is actually not true? You know that the old testament points to the messiah in the new and you know that if he's not born of a virgin He's not your messiah So as a result when someone says oh, you don't need to believe in the virgin birth What have they just done? They've undermined the fact that he is the one that the old testament points to now You don't have any confidence that it's really him if you don't believe in the virgin birth or if you discount it You've suddenly discounted jesus as the messiah These are very significant things that we do not take lightly. The position of the textual revelation or the scriptures or the Bible is the same as the position of the person. God has exalted his word. It's a strange thing, but what we see in Philippians is we see that Jesus took the lowest place and God highly exalted him. So Jesus sits at the right hand of majesty. So what sits at the right hand of majesty? The word of God. So where does this scripture, this Bible sit? It sits in the highest position. It sits and everything is beneath it. When you speak the word of God, you speak with authority because it speaks from a very high and holy hill. You understand that nothing can stand against it. All things are under the word of God's feet. That's just a statement about Jesus Christ in the flesh, isn't it? Well, it's also a statement of the word of God in text. The way Jesus dealt with the devil in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days is he spoke the word of God in text. He spoke it. And when you speak it, there is power, there is authority, because these words are not man's words. They are God's words. So Colossians 1, Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth visible and invisible Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things were created by him and for him See this is just showing you the significance of jesus christ So when you understand that jesus christ is the word of god You begin to understand the significance of the word of god in text even as you read this You see how did god create the heavens and the earth? He spoke He said let there be light what happened? And there was. You see, God created through the Word. That's how He created. And so now we have that Word in 66 books chronicled, organized, and handed to us. We do not mistreat this book. This is not the writings of Homer. This is not the writer, writings of Socrates. This is the writings of God. This is God's annunciation, And we do not treat it as any base form of literature. This is God's expression to us. And it has power and it has authority to change the world in which we live. You diminish the word of God in text, you'll lose the word of God in person. When you lose the word of God in person, you lose everything that he came to do to save and to triumph. So, as we conclude our first little portion here, I want us to meditate upon the fact that this word of God in text and in person is under siege today. And God has handed this text and the understanding of who this person is to us. We are its guardians. And so if we do nothing, the word of God would be lost. But we will do something, for we are his body. And he has equipped us and given us the grace that we need to stand in such an hour and defend it.
0: Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.